0: Now, before we go any further, I want to ask if anybody can tell me what our mission statement is here at Stony Brook Fellowship. We have a renewed, revised mission statement. We've talked about it a few times. Who can tell me what the mission statement is? And this isn't rhetorical. If someone can do it, raise your hand and tell me what it is. Who can tell me? It doesn't say who has memorized it. Who can tell me? Who could look at something that probably would have the mission statement on it, and then and let me know what it is? This is important. You don't have a bulletin? Well, someone does. Someone's let, you can read and has a bulletin, right? Show me. Raise your hand. Tell me what it is. It's is like where's Waldo? You've Gotta try to read. No, you guys are not. You're not that fast this morning. Maybe we should get up and do a few exercises. I don't know. All right, Wes. (laughs) Awesome. Come up here. Come up, Wes. You win. Come. Come up. Don't worry. You can get back at me when, when the hazing happens at church camps. Come. I'll I'll meet you over here. I know I'll go off camera for a second. It's okay. Here is your reward. Ah, 20 bucks. There you go for reading the bulletin. Congratulations. Go ahead. Everyone give it up for Wes. (laughs) For the live stream, I did go off camera. It was legit $20, you know. Um, And some of you are like, I didn't know money was involved. You would have been a little quicker on the draw, right? If you knew $20 was at stake, just like I drink a lot more coffee when it's roll up the rim to win. I find certain things motivating and money can be one of them. Others, you got a little uncomfortable when I took $20. Why do you have to bring money into this? Like that's kind of awkward. Uh, And money has a way of doing both those things, motivating and making us feel uncomfortable. And if you thought that was uncomfortable, (laughs) boy, howdy, have you come to the right sermon today? Uh, Because we are going to talk about money. Uh, Not because I go out of the way. In fact, I've shared with, with a number of people that as pastor, one of the things I don't want to do is go out of my way to talk about money. Uh, But if the Bible talks about it, then I want to be faithful to preaching what is in the word. And in fact, when you read through scripture, you'll find that money and material wealth and possessions come up quite frequently. Uh, My old senior pastor, I shouldn't call him old, former, he's pretty old too, uh, senior pastor Henry O'Zerny has written a book called How Come There's So Much Month at the End of My Money. And uh, in his introduction, he talks about, you like that, that too? Yeah, that's good. He talks about how prevalent this topic is in Scripture. I just want to read from you his introduction as he has um, done some of the sleuthing on this. When you read the Bible, you will make an astonishing discovery. The one topic it, spe- topic it speaks on more than any other is that of money or wealth or possessions. There are 2,350 verses in the Bible on the topic of money. That's three times more than there are about the topic of love. Seven times more than what it says on prayer and eight times more than it is recorded on faith. Jesus himself spoke on money more than he did on any other topic. One-sixth of his recorded statements are on money. 16 out of his 38 parables deal with the issue of finances. He spoke more on money than he did about both heaven and hell. And so if the Bible is going to interact that much with the topic, and Jesus is going to focus on it so much in his teaching, then we are not going to shy away from it either here at Stony Brook Fellowship as we continue to seek to preach biblically each and every week. Now the Bible talks about it because obviously money is important. And as we continue to look at what it means to have spiritual renewal, then our attitude towards money is going to have a huge impact in our relationship with God. And that is the the message that Jesus has for us as we find his teaching in Matthew chapter 19. I'm going to be reading for you verse 16 to 29. So again, if you have your Bible with you, you can open up to Matthew 19 and follow along. Uh, This is a common story that's found in in most of the Gospels. It's an interaction with Jesus and a rich young man. And let me read this for you today, and then we'll pray and continue on. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher... What good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Please pray with me. God, it's a a sore subject for many of us, this idea of money. And yet we also recognize the importance that is placed on this topic in your word. We know that your son went out of his way to teach on this topic time and time again. So God, I do pray that no matter what our relationship with money is coming into uh, today, I pray that you would find in this group uh, people with willing hearts to learn. Father, we pray that again, your spirit would be the the guide that we need into your words of truth and uh, that we would humbly live differently in response to it. Amen. So what does Jesus have in mind to teach us through this interaction with a rich young man all those years ago? Well, I think there are three main things. This is good. I like my three-point sermons. There's three main things I want to highlight that I believe are still in store for us here today. And the number one thing that we start off with here is to avoid temptation. Specifically, we need to avoid the temptation to fall in love with money. Because it is incredibly tempting to do so. In fact, this temptation is there for people whether they have money or don't. For those of us, and again, many of us are wealthy by the world standards, for sure. If we have money, we enjoy it. It can give us something tangible. It opens many possibilities for pleasure and satisfaction and the enjoyment that we want and we desire. And at least in the short term, money opens all these doors and makes so many of these things possible. And so for that reason, it is tempting to fall in love with money. And yet, for those who have very little, money can be even more tempting because they see other people using it and spending it and enjoying it and receiving the benefits of it, and yet they have this lack in their life, and so there's this deep longing that can be created in their hearts to desire to have this money so that it can open those same doors for them. So no matter where you are on either side or anywhere in the middle of that spectrum, the love of money is a very real temptation for all of us. And part of it depends on how we view money. How do you view money? What does money bring you? Going back to uh, Dr. O'Zerny's book, he talks about three of the main things that we desire money to do for us, things we hope that will bring us. One of the main things we look for is satisfaction. Money will give me what I need to be happy, to be satisfied. What we talked about with this temptation, it will allow us to take those trips that we so want to go on. It will give us the ability to buy our dream house with everything that we want or that new toy. And as you get older, like I have been doing, those toys get more and more expensive. And so money can just kind of continue to do those things that you want to bring you that pleasure, to bring you that satisfaction. It's there to be spent, to be used, to be enjoyed. <laughs> Money also, for many people, brings significance. It's not so much about the things, it's about the significance or the prestige that those things symbolize. So the pressure there, if you view money this way, would be to keep up with the Joneses. You want to make sure that you have enough money to move into that neighborhood or to make sure that that your house is one of the nicer ones in that neighborhood or and so and so goes and gets a new car you want to do that or you're seeking after that promotion at work and it's not just about spending the money it's about what you want that to do for how other people perceive you giving you this significance and and a third main thing that we look for money to provide is that of security and church this is me i'm like spend money why would we do that Money is to be hoarded, to be saved, so that no matter what happens, I don't have to be afraid or anxious for the future because we have this nice nest egg. We've got the safety net of finances. And so as Karen and I have had the opportunity to work through some premarital counseling with couples, one of the things we do is we see, how do you view money? Because if someone views it for significance or for satisfaction, they want to spend, and another person looks to it for security, well you know, I don't have a a thing or two to say in a marriage relationship. But we all need to be aware of how we view money, because how we view it is also how we are going to find the love of money tempting. Oh, I just, I would love to have this thing so I could enjoy it. Oh, I'd love to be able to, um, you know, have season tickets to the jet so I could stand around the water cooler and everyone would be jealous of me. Or, oh man, I just, I just, I'm so scared about the world and and I just need to have that, that savings account or that, that retirement savings account be a, a certain level so that I can go to bed in peace at night. But the reason this temptation is so dangerous, the reason it's spoken about not just here by Jesus but throughout Scripture is because each and every one of these areas is an area that God wants to fill in your life. And when we fall in love with money, And when we look to our wealth and possessions to provide us with these things, it robs God of the opportunity to do what he wants to do. He says to each and every one of you, I want to be your satisfaction. I want to provide you with a fulfillment so deep that if you lose everything else in this world, you still have enough. God says, I want to give you significance because I loved you so much that I bled and died and and laid down my life for you so that we could be together. How much more significance can we find? Outside of our identity in Christ. And God says to someone like me and many others who deals with anxiety, money is not what brings you peace. Money is not what helps you navigate an uncertain future. That is something that I want to do for you in, in my love and in my sovereignty. And so when we fall into the temptation of money, it's not just the money that's the problem, it's just that we get robbed of something better, of God providing these things for us the way that He desires to do so. And so we can now understand why the love of money is so dangerous. And Paul saw this, and he wrote to his protege Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, and he sees not only the the love of money, but also some of the negative consequences of this pursuit. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 9, he says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction." For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now I find it interesting, Paul doesn't say money is evil. So we're not trying to say that money itself or wealth or possessions is inherently a negative thing. But the love of money, the pursuit of money, that temptation for your wealth to give you what only God can give is something that will have disastrous consequences in your own relationship with God and your pursuit for spiritual renewal because the love of money leads to begin to replace our need for God. And as Jesus describes this to the young man or even to his disciples after his interaction with the young man, he goes so far to say that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is, of course, an extraordinary picture for us to have. It is something that is truly impossible. And Jesus says, yeah, it would be impossible on human standards and with human strength, but all things are possible with God. Now, when we read the story, as we did together, we'll see that the disciples were greatly astonished that Jesus said it would be hard for a rich person to inherit the kingdom of God. The reason for that is because in the Jewish culture that Jesus is living in and teaching in, it was assumed that wealth was a sign of God's favor and God's blessing. And so it was therefore assumed that rich people would be closer to God, closer to the kingdom of heaven. And if you were to be a notable religious leader, it would be expected that you would have at least some type of material wealth that would add to the evidence of God being in your corner, giving you this blessing and this fortune. And Jesus and his disciples would have been quite different in that way. And so now Jesus is teaching into the culture around him something completely different. He's taking all of those assumptions and turning them onto their head, which is why the disciples were greatly astonished. He teaches the opposite. And the reason is because wealth gives us the deception that we have what we need outside of God. And today, in the culture that we find ourselves a part of, affluence, wealth, and money are one of the greatest obstacles to people responding to the gospel and choosing to follow Jesus. Because we can go through our lives and try to, at least for a time, think that we have everything we need okay, why do I need Jesus? I have a double income, no kids. I've got the house I want. I've got the toys that I want. We can go wherever we want and do whatever we want. Why do I need anything else? And that affluence can can erode people's understanding of the spiritual need that they have that only Jesus can fulfill. But this is not limited, this temptation of the love of money and its uh, destructive behavior is not limited to those who are not yet part of the church. It can also take our eyes off what is most important as believers. And a few months ago, I was having a conversation with a friend and and confided in in, in something very deep. He said, I am increasingly dissatisfied with how I'm preoccupied with the things of the world. And that challenged me. Because we just go through life and we want to fix our eyes on Jesus, but everything that's right in front of us uh, can tend to just drag our attention and our eyes down to here. And before we know it, where are our priorities? Where are we looking to for our satisfaction? Where are we investing the things of this world or the things of the kingdom of God? We need to avoid temptation, not just of money, not just of wealth, but of everything in this world that can drag our attention away. Because the second thing we need to learn, which is an extension of this, is we need to learn, as Jesus would teach, to focus our devotion. The teaching of Christ is about much more than money. Yeah, finances are the backdrop of this conversation, but they point to something so much deeper and much more significant. The question that Jesus ultimately asks the rich young man, and that I would ask you today too, what are you devoted to? Who are you devoted to? And the sad reality is is that money often vies for that top claim of devotion in our lives something Jesus taught about in the sermon on the mount earlier in Matthew chapter 6 verse 24 where he says no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other you cannot serve both god and money this is a matter of devotion a matter of who or what you are serving who is your master. And this was certainly the case, the conundrum for the rich young man of our story. He believed in God. He kept the commandments. He was spiritually seeking the things of God. He wanted to have it all. But the question for him that Jesus posed to him was okay, I know you're open, I know you're curious, and you want to have eternal life. But he stopped short of devotion. I want to draw our attention back to the story we read together. And it starts by the young man asking Jesus, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Which at the outset was an honest question for him, but it was the wrong question. And Jesus immediately, lovingly, uh, very patiently just, just kind of redirects him. And he says, why do you ask about what is good? There is only one who is good. Referring to God, the one true God. He is perfectly good. There is nothing ungood about him. And he and he alone is like that in nature. So Jesus is saying at the very beginning, you're asking the wrong question. It's not a matter of being good enough or doing enough good things. You cannot earn your salvation. Instead, he says, keep the commandments which to you and I might seem like just another way of dressing up this earning of your salvation. But I would say that Jesus understands, as well as anybody, that the only way to inherit eternal life, the only way to enter the kingdom of God is to be in right relationship with him. And at this moment in time, the, the only way to have right relationship with God was to keep the old covenant, to keep the law, to keep the commandments. And then when you did inevitably sin, you would have the sin offering, which for that time would be uh, something that would cover up that sin. But now, on the other side of the cross, Jesus changes everything. And the only way now for us to have right relationship with God is to acknowledge that on the cross, Jesus was the one, true, perfect sacrifice that paid the penalty for all of our sins, for all people, for all time. And that through trusting in that sacrifice and trusting in his victory over death three days later, now we can have right relationship with God. Now we can enter that kingdom of heaven. Now eternal life is ours because of what he has done. And so even though it looks different here, it's because the conversation and the context is different. He's saying you cannot be good enough. Instead, you must be in right relationship with God. And then Jesus shows some of the fruit of what that would look like to keep the commandments and he goes to the Ten Commandments and he, he, interestingly enough, he skips over the first four that focus on a relationship with God. And then he talks about commandments five through nine, which really dwell on how we treat one another. He says, this is what your life should look like. And then why five through nine? What's commandment number ten? Does anyone know what the tenth commandment is? Do not covet. So what Jesus is saying is important, but what he is not saying is equally important. He knows this young man's weak spot. He knows the commandments that he has kept and the one that he hasn't. He knows that he has fallen for the love of money. And so the young man says, I've I've kept all those commandments. What else do you want me to do? What do I still lack? And again, I think there's an honest spiritual question here. He knows that there is something missing. He knows that he doesn't have everything that God desires to have to give him. And then Jesus has another interesting response. If you wish to be perfect, Go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, for you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Perfect is an interesting word. We need to clarify that a little bit to understand what Jesus is saying. In Greek, that word for perfect is telos, and it means to be mature, to be fully developed, to be brought to completion. The picture we have is when you're thirsty and you put a cup on the counter and you fill up that cup. And to be perfected would to be filled to the brim to the brim which is different than the way we think of perfect which is more along the lines of oh i have this math test and there's 10 questions and the only way that it's perfect is if i get 10 out of 10 there's no mistakes no blemishes that's perfection not the type of perfection jesus is talking about he says to the young man if you want to be brought to completion by god if you want to be filled with the things of god if you want to be spiritually mature sell everything you own and give it to the poor and come follow me. And he couldn't do it. That was all that he needed to do. There was the promise of eternal life, of the kingdom of God, of of heavenly treasure, and he could not do it because he was more devoted to his wealth than he was to the things of God. In that way, he was not full. He was not completed. He was, as you and I are apart from Jesus, imperfect. So the answer now is not to be so worried about all these other things that vie for our attention or priority in our life. The answer then is to focus our devotion primarily solely on Jesus. And when we focus on him and we're devoted to following him, I truly believe everything else will find its proper place underneath. We need to focus our devotion, which is also a huge part of our mission here. At Stony Brook Fellowship, one of the reasons I wanted to pay Wes twenty bucks because he wanted to share this mission statement. He says we are a spiritual family that encourages the under church and over church to live as devoted followers of Jesus Christ. This is what we want to do. This is what we want to encourage one another to do because living a devoted life is incredibly hard to do on your own. It is designed to be done and walked through in community, like we have right here, a spiritual family and so we set up some groups want to be we want to be intentional about this so we have our fellowship groups our small group ministry we have our discipleship groups which are groups of three or four uh, men or women that can dig even deeper into certain conversations in that setting we have these spiritual friendships we talked about last week where this doesn't all have to be kind of contained to a program or a ministry we just want to do life together and encourage each other along to just challenge and to, and, 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 and to cheer on as we want to be devoted to Jesus Christ. Because devotion is not easy. It means giving everything in your life to Jesus. If you want me to define what devoted looks like, it means like taking your entire life, every single area, and handing it over without keeping one or two things back. That's not devotion. That is exactly what the rich young man was trying to do. Now we have talked about some very sensitive and personal topics here recently. We've talked about division within families. We've talked about um, church discipline when people sin against you. We've talked about divorce and remarriage and now money. <laughs> and they're all from the teaching of Christ. And church, I'm getting this sneaking suspicion that Jesus is interested in all areas of our life, that nothing is off limits for him, that his desire for our life is for each and every little detail, things big and small, things comfortable and uncomfortable, those that we have a hard time talking with and those that we talk about readily. And so if you are to look into your own heart and ask after your own devotion, you can say it this way. What, what is the hardest area of my life to hand over to God? What is the thing that I just don't want to get rid of? Because we're okay with giving most things, but some things we want to hold back. To give everything makes us feel weak. It can make us feel unarmed. I say that because one of, the, one of my favorite um, types of scenes, as I watch some movies and shows, there's a, a trope called an extended disarming scene. It's used over and over again. And I, I was watching the Book of Boba Fett the other day, Star Wars, because that's why I have Disney+. Plus. And so I was watching the Book of Boba Fett, and they had one of these scenes where, where this um, character wants to board a spaceship, and they say, no, you have to take all your weapons off before you enter. And he says, no, this is my weapons are my religion. And it was. They <laughs> say so you have to do it. And so then you have like minutes of him taking off grenades and thermal detonators and blasters and hidden knives and just watch how many weapons does this guy have? He's armed to the teeth. And he says, I know everything that's in there. (laughs) It better be there when I get back to the the next destination. But why does he want to hang on just even to one thing? Because if he could have just one thing left over, then he could feel armed. He could feel like he could defend himself. He would have some sort of control. To give over everything, is a complete act of trust, so much more so in our own lives. What area of your life do you find hardest to give over to Christ? It could be your money or your wealth. You say, Jesus, you have everything, but man, I've got financial goals, and I'm going to continue to work towards these. These are mine. It's very often your sexuality, where you say, okay, money's not a big deal to me, but, but my sex life, that's as personal as it gets. You have no business there. We hang on to it. It could be your kids. In one breath, we could say, oh, God, this is such a blessing uh, to have these children, but now I'm going to parent them and raise them in the way that I see fit. Or it could be your career where you say, you know, everything else that happens with family and at church, that's good, but when I clock in, then I'm going to act in such a way that's in my best interest. And for you, it could be something completely different. What is the temptation that we hold back that does not allow us to completely focus our devotion on Jesus? So yeah, we've got a lot of challenges ahead of us when it comes to, to wealth. We need to avoid the temptation of loving money. We need to focus our devotion solely on Christ and so that our possessions don't become something that is vying for that devotion. But ultimately, there's a, a promise in all of it. A promise and one more encouragement. That is to make an eternal investment. Money is not evil. Money is not bad. Money needs to be used properly. And the way that it can be used most appropriately is for the kingdom of God. Jesus commanded the young man not just to give away everything that he owned, but to go and to sell it and give it to the poor, to do something God-honoring with all that he had been given. Now, he couldn't, but it reminds me of another story with a very similar interaction, but a different ending. And that's the story of Zacchaeus, who was a wee little man. And a wee little man was he. And we know from that story that he went up in a sycamore tree I'm done. Okay, and so Zacchaeus was very similar to the rich young man. He was rich, and he was spiritually curious, and he went and he approached Jesus and had an interaction with him, and he climbs this tree, and Jesus, like any good traveling pastor, sees the rich guy and invites himself over for dinner. Right? So I'm coming to your house for dinner. That's what I'm going to do. And then we have this conversation with Zacchaeus and Jesus, and we do not know what they say. We don't know what they say. And that, I I, I love the Zacchaeus story, but oh, I wish I could know what happened around that dinner table. But if I was a betting man, and I'm not, except for roll up the rim, right? That's Mennonite approved gambling, just so we're all aware. If I was a betting man, I believe that dinner conversation with Zacchaeus would have been very strikingly similar to the conversation that Jesus has with this rich young man. But But the reaction to that is completely different. And Zacchaeus, out of response to Jesus' teaching, says, I choose to sell half of what I own and to give it to the poor. I choose to repay anybody that I've defrauded and give them more in interest. And Jesus confirms to Zacchaeus that today salvation has come to this house. Because Zacchaeus was now using his wealth for the sake of kingdom of God in response to following Jesus. He was not trying to earn his salvation He was not keeping any commandments. He was focused in his devotion for Jesus and he used his money accordingly to make an eternal difference, to give back to the poor and those that he had wronged. And likewise, our devotion to Christ should be evident in our generosity to building his kingdom. And I would say that one of the main ways that we can do this is to faithfully give to your local church. (laughs) So let me call time out for for one minute here. So if you're new to Stony Brook, if you're visiting with us, if it's your first couple of weeks here, I love you guys. I'm so glad you're here. This next little bit's not for you. So you can just tune out for a little bit. You can get your phone out and see uh, what's going on. Uh, And and I'll let you know when you can jump back in because I want to challenge our family here. And there's never any obligation to give here at Stony Brook. And that's actually extended to you as a church family as well. If you are here and you're a member or this is your home church, I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to to give you a few things I think are important for you to know, but again, there is no obligation to give. There wasn't for the rich young ruler. There wasn't for Zacchaeus. It was done out of that focused devotion. But for those who are here, what do I think would be a great way to tangibly make this investment to your local church? I think uh, I want to give you two ideas that, that I'd love for you to do. The first thing I want you to do is I want you to prayerfully make a plan of what God is asking you to give. Now, for many of us who especially have grown up in the church, that plan has been to tithe 10%. We see that as a great biblical example. Uh, I had a chance to watch my parents uh, make this goal, make this plan, and keep it. And I saw the benefits of that in their life and the hard times it it brought in their life. And so that has been my plan and Karen's plan. We want to tithe 10%. But I would, say, I would I would say this, and it's very important. 10% is not a rule. It's not a command. And I know there are some of you and you're thinking, man, uh, I am I'm just I'm a young adult, and I'm just getting a, a job and an income for the first time, and 10% seems impossible. Or I'm new to church, or I, I've been coming to church for a long time. I've never really given regularly. How can I go from zero to 10%? That seems impossible. And so I'd say to you, then don't do 10%. Pray to God and ask Him where He wants you to start. It could be one percent, two, five, seven. I don't know, and I will never know because I don't know who gives what here at the church. That's very intentional and on purpose. But I think it's very important for you to sit down, and if you're married, sit down with your spouse (laughs) and come up with a plan. What is God asking us to give? What can we give faithfully? But there are maybe some others of you who have given 10% for years and years and years. That's integrated right into your budget. No big deal, no sweat. I would also remind you, 10%, not a command, not a rule. What's to stop you from giving 11 12 15%? Is that something that you believe God would be interested in you doing with the many blessings that he has given you? So no matter where you are, prayerfully make a plan. The second thing that I would encourage you to do is to prioritize your plan. The Bible would say we need to give our offering to the church, to the kingdom of God as our first fruits. Because there is this other temptation. If we don't have a plan or if it's not prioritized, if we just come to the end of the month and see what's left over to give, well, so many months are going to get away. Oh, it was a crazy month. There was some unforeseen bills. And uh, we went out to eat a few extra times. And and -and so-and-so needed my help. And now I, I wanted to give this much, but I don't have that left over. But Scripture says, no, when it comes to giving to the kingdom, it is good to give us first fruits. One real practical way you can do this, something that helps me, is uh, as I use a pre-authorized debit because I forget things all the time. <laughs> and so the only way that I can ensure that this is going to come out of my first fruits is when I go and I, I, I fill out the form and I give it and I say, okay, the first of every month, this is what I want to make sure goes to the church before anything goes anywhere else. And so if that's of interest to you at all, you can talk to Lisa, who's our, our secretary. You can talk to me. Uh, but that's just one way in which we can practically prioritize the plan that we've committed to giving to God and to the church. Now, what happens when your money gets to the church? Well, I would say that as a, on behalf of the leadership at Stony Brook, our commitment is to steward the funds that you have given us and use them for God's kingdom work. Now, I love, I love the fact that this is the first time I've talked about money in my two and a half years here. And I love even more that I can talk about money when we have been in such a financially solid position. Last year, thanks to your generosity, We had more funds donated to Stony Brook than any other year in the history of this church. And I want to say thank you. You have been faithful and generous. You are faithful and generous. And I know you will continue to do so. So this is not a finger-wagging sermon. I want to say thank you and acknowledge your generosity that you've already been committed to showing. But what has been interesting is we had so much money left over that we needed to sit down and think, huh, what are we going to do with these funds? Because they can go a little further than just paying the rent or keeping the lights on or paying the salaries. Though I think all of those are fairly important, and I thank you for them as well. Well, what can we do? And so one of the things we talked about as leadership is our desire to spend more and more of a percentage of our money towards missions and ministries. So that when Dallas and Tara come and they give an update, that we know, yeah, we can give them more financial backing as a church because of your generosity. And that when we see the youth do their programming, we know that, yes, we were able to increase their budget because of your generosity. And these are the things, the mission and the ministries, in which we really see that eternal investment at work. So thank you for doing that. And I want to continue to encourage you to be generous because it will only open more and more doors for those priorities. But as much as I think giving to your local church is important, okay, time out. Everyone who's, uh, who's been t- tuned out the last few minutes, you can come back in. This is for you now, okay? So join me, everyone. Uh, as much as giving to your local church is important, never limit your gener- generosity solely to the church. Don't give only to the church. I would say above and beyond whatever your plan is that you've prioritized, that God's asking you to give, ensure that you're generous in other areas. To give to missionaries, both long-term and short-term, especially those students that are going on those missions trips and that letter comes in the mail. Make sure you're generous to give to them if they want to do camp ministry. Uh, Make sure that there's still something left over to give so we can support the different food banks uh, and meet the very real physical needs that are at work in our community. Make sure that you're creative in giving gifts to friends and family members, not just on their birthday, but just because to encourage them. Be creative in your generosity. Don't limit it to the church. All of this can be done with a generous and giving spirit. All of it can be significant ways, even the small ways in which we make that investment into the kingdom of God. And yes, that is a challenge, but Jesus gives a promise with it. He says, your return on investment will be invaluable, will be priceless, will be more than you could ever imagine. There is a tremendous promise attached to the commandment, you give up your earthly treasure and you will receive heavenly treasure. And when we focus our devotion on Jesus, he requires us to give everything to him, and then he turns around and gives you more. We give everything to him, and then he gives us more. Now, Peter (laughs) gets a little bit worried about all the things that he's given up. He says, Jesus, we've given up everything to follow you. What will we have? And sometimes I feel like Jesus could come down pretty harsh here on Peter, but he doesn't. He encourages him. He makes him, and by extension, us a promise. As we pick up in verse 29, And everyone, everyone who has left houses or brothers, or sisters or father, or mother or children, or lands or wealth or possessions or money, whatever you want to put in there, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. We give up everything and then we get more. Store up your treasure in heaven because it is so much more valuable, a hundredfold more valuable according to Jesus in this teaching. I love the way he puts it in the Gospel of Luke. Just one last passage as we wrap up here. Luke chapter 12, verses 33 and 34. Jesus teaches to sell your possessions and give to the needy. That sounds familiar. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So invest in the kingdom. Sell what you have, give to the poor, invest, make a plan to give to the church and elsewhere. Focus your devotion for where your heart is, there your treasure treasure is, there your heart will be also. And return on investment will be incredible. It does not fail. It cannot be taken away. And this takes faith. We can see our earthly treasure. We can enjoy our possessions. Dare we give up what we can hold for something that we cannot see? That's the question. Dare we give up what we can hold for something that we cannot see? And yet as the music team comes back up, I want to share with you one of my favorite quotes. And I've shared this before. I think it's appropriate. This is uh, Jim Elliott who lost his life doing mission work. He says this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So trust me, the math adds up. The promise is greater than the command. What we lose is far less than what we gain. So we renew our use of money by avoiding its temptation, looking to God for our satisfaction, our significance, and our security, by focusing our devotion on Jesus and giving every area of our life to him, including our wealth, and by making an eternal investment, giving generously for God's kingdom, and placing our hope in heavenly treasure that will never fade. Let's pray once more. God, you have been generous to us, not just in the things you've given us here, but in the the gift you've given to us through your son, Jesus, this gift of eternal life. And as we approach Easter, we are more and more focused on what that cost and what that gave. So God, just knowing the heavenly riches that we have been given and readily inherit, God, I pray that we would be freely generous with the earthly riches that we have here, that we would make that eternal investment and that we would watch you use it and multiply it Draw other people closer, and closer to you. Amen. Well, uh, thank you for sticking uh, with me on what is a sermon on a topic that maybe you weren't hoping or expecting would come up this Sunday morning. And I'm looking forward to not talking about money for another two and a half years. Uh, but there are some, I think, very practical steps we can take. And so I do want to leave you with a few action steps to consider as you go from here. Uh, I think it would be really good for you to look and do a little introspection to know how do you view money? What does, what does it you hope that it brings you? Is it satisfaction or significance or security? And when you understand that, then pray to ask God to f- provide this for you instead. And I think really you will find a lot of freedom when you're able to do that. The second thing when it comes to focusing on devotion, what area of your life are you holding back from devoting to Jesus? Where it's like, yeah, you can have everything but this. And not only do I want you to pray to give that over, I really want you to uh, tell somebody you trust, this is my struggle, and this is what I'm seeking to do. And I think bringing a trusted person into that circle will help you focus your devotion. And the last thing in line with some of the things we talked about is uh, making this eternal uh, investment is to uh, make a plan to invest in the kingdom of God. Sit down and with your spouse. What does God want me to do? What is he calling me to give? And then prioritize that plan as your first fruits. And I am excited about what God is continuing to do here at Stony Brook, and this is all a part of it. Let's be generous in our wealth, our possessions, in our attitudes and actions towards one another and point everybody to Jesus. See you next week.